Our scripture lesson tonight uh, may be familiar to you. It's one of my favorites. It's from Philippians, uh, the early church in Philippi. Uh, and it is a great admonition from chapter 4. Let's share in God's good word together. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So how about you? Are you content? Are you at peace? Are you okay whether your hands are full or your hands are empty? How are you? How is it with your soul? That is the the question that our founder, John Wesley, would ask in the Methodist tradition. Uh, We continue in our FOMO series, The Fear of Missing Out. Uh, And I want to talk to you about the secret cure, the the secret cure that Paul talked to the church in Philippi about, the secret cure that Jesus called uh, and talked about within himself, uh, with his followers, and what it was to be content, to be at peace, to no longer be afraid. And I think in some ways it gets harder and harder the more connected we are around the world. Uh, If something bad happens, everybody knows about it. Uh, as many of you all knew, I used to be in the news business, uh, and the way uh, that we would say this is if a dog bites a man, that is not news. But if a man, wait, that's not how I say it. If a dog bites a man, that's not news, but if a man bites a dog, that's news, right? If, a, if your airplane lands, that's not news. If an airplane doesn't land, that's news. So we, we are filled with these images by the thousands every day. Thousands and thousands of images. And if we're not careful, we become afraid. Let, let, let's just run an experiment, for, for example. Let's say you go to the movie. I went to the movie the other week, and it started out just like this. There's a family, happy family, all in the car. They're singing a song. Let's, let's just suppose for a moment that the snow begins to come around them. This is just a wonderful family. And, and, and they're talking, and they're laughing, and they zoom in, and the kids are smiling. And, and they start to sing jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. And then the, it pans over, and you see this beautiful little deer hanging out in the woods just outside the road. What happens next? Well, seriously, what comes to mind? What do you think happens next in the scene? What? What? Tell me. A car crash. The deer runs out. What is wrong with you people? I went to go see a children's movie just last week, and that's exactly what happened. Right? And we're conditioned. This is exactly what we think is going to happen. That that if your life is too good, if you're having a nice day with, with nice people, if you're singing a Christmas carol, or you look at a beautiful creation of God, what happens next? Disaster. That's our expectation. We have been trained to think like that. I didn't, I didn't have to work very hard to get you to think about disaster. It just happens. That's who we are as people. And Christ says, you don't have to live like that. There is a better way. There is a different way. And friends, this, if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. Fear and scarcity trigger then comparison, or what we call FOMO, the fear of missing out. Will you say fear of missing out with me? Fear of missing out. What's the key word? Fear. It's in all of us. It's in our human condition. And so when we become afraid or we don't think there's enough, it triggers comparison with everything else that it makes us miserable. This is certainly a a primary issue um, with millennials. 
Uh, millennials are those folks who are currently age 19 to 34. That might be some of you, or maybe you know some millennials. And, and think about this. If you're a millennial, these are the top three formative pieces in your life. Uh, 9-11, mass shootings, and the 2008 financial collapse. If you're a millennial, this is your formative image. Nothing certain. A crash is going to happen either in a car or in the market. You're not safe at school or at home. And our nation is no longer safe. This is what one of our, lar our largest generation now believes in our country. And it's a problem. It's a problem. And, and so we look to things to comfort ourselves, to numb ourselves. And so I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I like to read different kinds of articles. And, and on my news feeds on my phone, it's not even Labor Day weekend yet, and I've already started getting articles like this. The 100 things that everyone else did this summer but you. Right? Number, number one, they laughed while tossing their hair back, while sitting on soft white sand and their feet in the surf. Everybody did that but me. You know? And then they made the most out of every precious moment with your child every weekend. Like they're just, they do it perfectly all the time. And then thirdly, they get lots and lots and lots of home projects completely done before noon while they talk to their besties about deep and meaningful social change uh, while drinking Starbucks coffee. Now, everybody's doing this but me this summer. Apparently everybody's done this. Um, or, you know, there's some people, even in our church, that are able to do this. I can't do this, but they sit with their feet at the campfire, and they play guitar, and they eat s'mores because it's a cheat day, uh, because they've already, you know, hiked to the top of the mountain, and you get the gist. This is just how it is. Everybody else is doing these things but you, you know, and so you feel like a loser because it's almost Labor Day, and you've forgotten to go to the neighborhood pool or whatever it is because everybody else is doing these great things, but not you and your family. So if, if we were to believe social media, really, some people seem to belong no matter where they are or what they're doing. They fit in no matter what they wear. They remain thin and sculpted, and they eat nothing but ice cream, and they stroll hand-in-hand hand through Paris or some other you know, beautiful city uh, you know, with their true love. Now, Forbes magazine cites a study that links FOMO, these feelings of disconnection and dissatisfaction. It's actually fueled by social media and the constant drive to keep up with friends. And worse yet... Some of us don't just want to keep up, but we actually start evaluating our lives by comparing our real lives that we know with the fake lives of other people that are portraying that on social media. And so, if you go to uh, your sermon notes here, more than half of millennials, this age 19 to 34, they say that they do this first thing in the morning, more than half of them do this first thing in the morning and the last thing before they go to bed. What is it? What? Oh, check their phone. More than half. More than half of them. So I have a graphic here uh, to show you. The first thing in the morning, 56 of millennials, 40% of the rest of us, but more than half in that age group. And then right before they go to bed, and this was the one that floored me, 12% get up in the middle of the night between 2 and 3 in the morning to check their phone, to see somebody's status update, if they've gotten a message, what's going on with their friend, who broke up with who. They wake themselves up in the middle of the night. Because they are so addicted to this FOMO. They're afraid that they're going to miss out. So for many of us, uh, this is how this begins to work. Our first thought in the morning is, I didn't get enough what? Yeah, so the first word you say to yourself is negative. Oh, I didn't get enough sleep. I'm a loser. Should have got more sleep. And our last thought before going to bed is, I didn't get enough done. 
Um, so imagine just the detrimental pieces on your psyche that the first thing in your morning is, oh, I didn't get enough sleep, loser. Last thing you say when you go to bed, I didn't get enough done, loser. And before you know it, everybody else seems to be a little better than you, and you're depressed, you're anxious, you're hurting and afraid. And we are seeing this in record numbers among millennials more than any other generation at any other time. Uh, we are the fattest, most addicted, most in debt America has ever been in its history as we try to soothe ourselves from being afraid of our neighbors and friends even. You see, we have this problem of the tyranny of never enough. Never enough. Um, and, and so I put this blank here, never blank enough. What, what is that um, for you? Uh, Brene Brown says, uh, you, you know, pick, take your pick. It only takes a few seconds before you begin to fill in these blanks with your own uh, tape that's in your head. Uh, what is it for you? Never good enough, never perfect enough, never thin enough, powerful enough, successful enough, smart enough, certain enough, safe enough, extraordinary enough. Which is it for you? You see, it happens to all of us. It just happens to all of us. And so you might say, well, I don't know if I have FOMO or not. Well, let me ask you. You might have FOMO if you check social media and email to not just, not just because, but to soothe that anxious feeling that you have, that you might be missing out on something important, uh, some important email you've been waiting for, a status update. Uh, you might have FOMO if you want to participate in every decision or power meeting at work because you don't want to miss out. You might have FOMO if you are the one managing the family gatherings where it will be held, who's invited, what's on the menu, who sits where, and when will the next one be. You might have FOMO if you are regularly moving houses, jobs, spouses, or never satisfied with your life work choice. You get that thing, well, if I was just in a different job, if I was just in a different neighborhood. You see, there's this fear that we're missing out, that there's a life out there that we're missing. If we could just get in the right zip code or car or picket. That's what advertising is based on. Now, here's the thing, though, friends. The opposite of FOMO is not extravagance beyond all other people that you may encounter. The opposite of FOMO is enough. Just enough. doesn't have to be extravagant, just enough. And Jesus says that with him living in you, with you participating in the life of God, the kingdom of God, you no longer have to, anything to fear. Nothing to fear at all. Not even fear itself. Nothing. Because Christ lives with you. And what can Jesus do? Anything. All things. And we can do all things in Christ who strengthens us. That's how Philippians 4 uh, goes on to read. So, point one is this. Good news. There is a cure. There is a cure. The challenge is, I'm not sure you're going to like it. There's a cure. It's found in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, and Eugene Peterson's The Message uh, writes it like this. Jesus says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me what? Lead. So if you want to be free of all this FOMO, all you have to do is let Jesus lead. Jesus, take the wheel. Right? Let Jesus lead. You're not in the driver's seat, Jesus says, I am. Now, I highlighted I am there because that's God's name for himself. And if we allow the great I am to lead, then we have nothing to fear. But you have to give up the destination. If you let the great I am lead, you have nothing to fear, but you have to give up the destination. That's what Jesus says about himself. 
He says, don't run from suffering, embrace it. Right? You, you can either have uh, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Those are your choices. Life has pain. So we don't run from suffering. We embrace it. Jesus says, follow me and I'll show you how. He's not just even leaving us on our own, but he will show us how. And the how is this. Vulnerability. That is the how of the Christian life. We are to be dependent upon God. We are to be his children, sons and daughters of God, which places us in a vulnerable spot because God is in the lead. Jesus has taken the wheel and we are going wherever he takes us. And it's good. But he decides, not us. And this vulnerability is possible when we know that we are adequately loved. We have to take control, we feel like, if we've grown up in an an alcoholic home or an abusive home or a home where we weren't sure we were loved or taken care of uh, when we weren't fed properly or we weren't cared for properly. Uh, All these sorts of things makes makes us feel like we need to be rigid about control. But the more we are loved and accepted and cared for, the more we're able to release our life into the hands of the one that loves us perfectly, Jesus. We allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And, and see, friends, this is, this is where it gets really tricky. Because in our culture, we want to win, win, win. That's what we want to do. And you can't win with Jesus. Jesus is the victor. And he decides what happens. So this is not a winning or losing, this accepting Jesus life, this with God life, this following Jesus. So you don't win and lose in this deal. This is being all in with Jesus, win or lose. That's what he invited the disciples to. That's what he invites you to. He invites you to get in the car and to go, and he decides the destination. He decides what happens. He decides who wins and who loses and when and at what rate and what sequence and how far and when and why. It's all his to do. But if you are with Jesus, it is good because he is good. But you don't get to drive. And you can actually let go of that. Now, I don't know about you. I I grew up in a pretty good home. I I really loved it. And so when we went on vacation, I got in the car and and I didn't map it all out. I, I didn't correct my parents and say, no, 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 I think you need to do this. No, no, I think you need to do that. No, I think Disney World's the other way. I didn't do that. I went to sleep and I woke up at Disney World. That's good life. That's the way you want that to be. Where you trust God like you trust your parents. Where they simply do good by you because that's their nature. They love and care for you. It's it's being all in. Allowing God to take our lives wherever God wants to. And so Jesus talks about this with God live in Matthew 10. And he encourages us to do the life with him. So, So Jesus says this. Um, oftentimes we, we, we get this wrong, that we think somehow that Jesus is going to make our life just a little better. And he says, no, no, don't think that I've come to make life cozy. I've come to cut, to cut through these cozy domestic arrangements and free you for God, that you're actually free. Well-meaning family members can be your worst enemies. He says, if you prefer father or mother over me, you don't deserve me. If you prefer son or daughter over me, you don't deserve me. If you don't go all the way with me, that's the thing about Jesus. It's all or nothing. You either serve him, follow him, or you don't. That's what's offered. You don't get to negotiate. You don't get to renew the contract. It's all or nothing with him. Through thick and thin, you don't deserve me if you're not willing to do that. He says if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself or God. 
But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. Other translations talk about if you'll lose your life, you'll find it. But if you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. And that's certainly the way it is with Jesus. Now, every once in a while, something really uh, troubling and disturbing happens um, here. Um, and and I'm, I think it's pretty common uh, in Edmond. Uh, I don't know if it's common around the world, but I know it's common here. Uh, people will stop in to church. Uh, and basically, and, and I'm reading articles about why people pick a church. And, and what I find is that people will come here, and if I'm able to articulate exactly what they already think, what they already believe, and particularly if it coincides with their political agenda, they'll stay. And they might even contribute. But if I can't miraculously repeat back to what you already have in your head and what you already believe, then you'll just go look for someplace else that can do that for you. And so preaching is getting harder and harder, particularly in election year. And you can imagine. You're like, I'm going to say, nope, can't say that. I'm going to say, nope, can't say that. Nobody will be here. But you understand that if you come to church with your mind already made up, then you're just wasting your time. I mean, really. If you have nothing that the Lord can teach you, if the scriptures are dead to you, if Christ has nothing to offer your life because you've already got life figured out, then you don't need any of this anyway. I mean, I mean really, what are we doing? It just doesn't make any sense. And, and you know, the, the, I, the thing is around Edmund, you've got a church every three blocks, and so you can spend probably the rest of your life bouncing churches if you want to. But it doesn't mean you're ever going to follow Jesus. You're just going to stay the same with what you already believe, with that you're already living out. And, and, and I would just like to just throw something wild out here. Perhaps God has something to teach us still. Maybe he has something that he wants us to grow into. Maybe he wants us to look more like him. And so this with God life um, looks like this, at least in the Methodist church. How do we do this? We say, well, first of all, we pray. We say, okay, Lord, what do you want to do with me today? That's what prayer is. It's listening. And saying, okay, Lord, what new thing? What do you want to open my eyes about? What do you want to open my heart about? What do you want to open my ears about? What do you want to teach me today, Lord? And as you do that, here's some things that I'm worried about. Can you help me with that as well? You'd be amazed what the Lord will do when we listen and we come to him in that posture. Secondly, we say it's about our presence, which is worship. Where we're here each week, unless we're sick or out of town. Uh, we actually show up. And, and it doesn't mean that we show up because we like the music, although I do. It doesn't mean that we're going to like the message. Uh, you know, you, you might prefer one kind of message over another. Um, worship is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what worship's about. It's to lift him up because he's worth it, regardless of the kind of day we're having. Worship, by the way, friends, is not to give you three steps to an easier life. That's not what worship's about. That's what a TED Talk might be about, but that's not what worship's about. Worship is about lifting up Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And we all have a part to play in that. And we may or may not feel awesome about it. We might, we might not. But it doesn't really matter. Because worship is about lifting God up to the world that needs to know him. Because he is the savior of the entire world. And then thirdly, we say it's prayers, presence. Say this with me. Gifts, right? And, and here's the thing. People are like, well, you know, the church just needs our money. Well, no, not really. I mean, God can put an oil well here if he wants to. Um, and raise the price to oil past 50 if he'd like. That'd be great for us. Um, you know, he can do all that. But here's the thing, friends. 
what we don't understand are these are not requirements of God that we do so that we can get in God's good graces. That's not the point at all. It's that these are the sorts of things that unless you tithe, unless you give 10% or more of your income, you never really know how good God is. You don't really know that he can take care of you. You don't really know that the miraculous things that when you give him room to move in your life, when you pray and he answers your prayer, when you show up at worship and you experience his presence, when you give over your power to him and he takes great care of you beyond your thinking or imagination, then you experience God in a new way. And can you predetermine the outcomes of these things? No, you cannot. Any more than you can get in the car with Jesus and expect to drive. And the other one's service. When you sign up to serve in the children's department or the youth department or on a mission trip, you don't know what's going to happen when you put in a well at Guatemala, do you? You don't know, but something happens. You don't know what's going to happen when you hand over your power to give or when you pray or when you show up to worship. You don't know the end result of any of those things, but your life is wonderfully different as you do them. And the final one is witness, where we actually share what God is doing in our life, through our prayers, our presence, our gifts, and our service. And if you're not doing those top four, you probably don't have a witness. Your witness is what God's doing through these things. And that doesn't make you better or worse than anyone else. It simply puts you in a position to be able to talk about what God and you are doing together. Now, just for fun, let me tell you a parable that I'm going to make up on the fly. But I've thought about it a long time. And that is, there once was a boy who went to the YMCA... And at the YMCA, they had all sorts of things that you might want to do that would make you healthy and strong. They had good food uh, that they would serve. They had trainers. They had weights. They had track. And they had a swimming pool. They had yoga classes. They had all these things that you could do. And so that young man, knowing that he needed to get stronger, went to the YMCA. And he went to the lobby. And he saw some of his friends. And he talked in the lobby with his friends. And they sat down. They had coffee that the YMCA provided. There were also some cookies out because it was a special celebration day and they ate the cookies and drank the coffee. And he toured the pool and he toured the workout facilities and he even walked around the track once. And he did this day after day after day after day. And let me ask you, did that boy lose any weight? Did that boy get stronger? But yet he went to the Y every day and he had really nice friends that made up his friendships at the Y. And he knew they had all these things that he could participate in. He just chose not to because he felt that everybody else was just so judgmental that he didn't lift more weight or swim more laps. And see, it didn't make any difference in his life whatsoever because he simply showed up and hung out. He was never really committed to doing the things that would actually get him stronger. He just liked to be around. They seemed like nice people. And I would submit to you, that by the tens or hundreds of thousands, the Western church looks exactly like that. We come to church and we sit down. We might even pay some dues. We don't really get integrated into picket service or worship or study or volunteerism or things that make a difference in the life of the world. And then we go, wow, you know, I'm just not feeling it at church. They're not really doing it the way, you know, I would do it. I hear some other churches are doing these other things. It just doesn't work, friends. You just need to know that. It just doesn't work. So it's our prayers and our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. And then we get to see what God will do. And you don't get to pick it. You don't get to see it to say, hey, Lord, if I do these things, I want to be in that house next month. It doesn't work like that. Or I want uh, you know, my kids to be better behaved. They might be, but it's probably coincidental. You, know, you just do the stuff. And you ask God to do what only God can do, and we do what only we can do. 
And so here's the thing that if you are on Twitter, I invite you to think about tweeting out. And that is this, that you can't win at following Jesus. And I know for, for some of us, you're just like, I, don't, I will never tweet that because I win at everything. But you can't win at following Jesus. And you say, oh no, Jesus is the victor. Yes, Jesus is. But he determines the outcome, not us. Otherwise, we'd be the Lord. But he's the Lord. You can't win at following Jesus because you don't determine the outcome. You can be healed, however. You can become a person of peace. You can be a person of love. You can become a person of mercy and of grace. And the question then is, are you game? Are you willing to sign up to serve a Savior that may or may not let you win? Because it's very possible that you're not winning might be the best thing for you. And if it is, you can bet you that the Lord will do the best thing for you. Every time, because that's who he is. He's good. If you would like a more well-known quote from G.K. Chesterton, uh, I'll offer that to you. And that is this, that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult. Really difficult. And left untried. But we need not get upset with God or the church or your small group or anybody else because things aren't working out. The thing is, we have to first commit to living the life that God calls us to. In and through the church. And we leave the results to Christ, whatever that might be. And Paul writes so beautifully. He gives us a vision of what this looks like, the result. In Philippians 4, 6 to 7, he says this, Don't fret or worry. Now, our founder, again, John Wesley, would say this is a covered promise. This isn't just a commandment. This is a promise of God that you have a life that's possible where you don't have to fret or worry anymore. You don't. He says, instead of worrying, do what? Pray. Let your requests, your petitions, and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Let your prayers and concerns be known before God. And before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. You see, you have a wonderful life awaiting you, but it requires that we let Christ drive. That Jesus takes the will. We go along and we go wherever he wants to go. And we do our part that he has taught us to do. With our prayers and our presence and our gifts and our service. And our witness of the wonderful things God does along the way. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. I want to show you uh, Matthew Ricard. And I want you to know that happiness is possible. This is the happiest man in the world. At least he was in 2004. No kidding. Matthew Ricard uh, temporarily left the monastery at Kathmandu to teach uh, a TED audience in Monterey, California, the habits of happiness. And according to Ricard, happiness is a deep sense of serenity and fulfillment. And he should know because he's not just pleased with his life. He's really, really happy. Scientifically, he's off the charts happy. Carmine Gallo writes of him, and he says that in a research study from Wisconsin, he placed 256 tiny electrodes on his scalp. Easy to do right? And they were going to measure his brain waves. And the study was conducted on hundreds of people who practiced meditation because it's been proven that meditation is a great way to have a happier life. It just is. It's that prayer piece. Now, they were rated on this happiness scale and Ricard didn't just score above average. The researchers couldn't find anything like it in the neuroscience literature. The brain scan showed excessive activity in his brain's left prefrontal cortex compared to its right counterpart, giving him an abnormally large capacity for happiness and a reduced propensity towards negativity. Scientifically proven the happiest guy on the planet, at least in 2004. 
But then he writes this. Ricard isn't all that happy about being labeled the happiest man in the world. He says, in truth, Ricard says, anyone, anyone, you and I, anyone can find happiness if we look for it in the right places. And then he said this. Authentic happiness can only come from the long-term, long-term cultivation of wisdom, altruism, and compassion. And from the complete eradication of mental toxins, such as hatred, grasping, and ignorance. Thus says Matthew Ricard, the happiest man on the planet. So what's the requirement? That's the result. You can be happy in this life. It's possible. And you don't even have to go to a monastery in Kathmandu to get there. You can do it right here in Edmond, Oklahoma. But the requirement is this, according to the Bible. And that is Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Paul says, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things that are true. Read them with me. Noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. And then Paul says this, do that, and God who makes everything works together will work you into his most excellent harmonies. So now I want you to think about your Facebook page or your Instagram or your newsfeed or what you watch before you go to bed at night. Is it excellent? Is it noble? Is it authentic? Is it beautiful? Is it the best? Because what I find, at least on my news feeds, is normally what you see is the worst. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that doesn't play into our life and how we live it and what we think. Because otherwise, some yehu up here is going to show you a beautiful picture of a deer and you're going to go, oh no, they're all going to die. That's how that works. You get it? For real, that's how that works. So be careful what you place in your minds. Fill your mind with what is true and gracious, the best, not the worst. And so our action step. Now, for those of you who have never um, studied the Bible seriously or done any Bible memorization or meditation, this may seem completely off page to you. But I want to recommend this to you, just to do this. For the next seven days, I want you to read the following passage with me every morning before you start your day. It'll take you about 95 seconds to do. That's it. I'm asking for a 95-second commitment on your part. But it reminds you of who you are in Christ. It reminds you of what God has done for you, and it reminds you of what's possible in your life. So I want to practice it one time here, and then uh, when you get home every morning, start tomorrow morning, just read this scripture over your life before you start your day. And, and let's just talk about what happens if your life's any different a week later. Uh, I'm doing that as a part of a class that I'm in, and I want to invite you to, to do it with me. So we'll try it now. Uh, take us about 95 seconds. Ready? Here we go. So if you have been raised with Christ, you have, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.